0: is Bill. This is Nonprofit Tangent and I'm really excited because uh, for two reasons. A this is the first time I've ever done a themed episode. Today's uh, theme is around music and uh, usually this is the part of the, the, the thing I hate the most which is when I have to talk to myself but today I am NOT talking to myself. I have Brian here is with me. He's from my hockey team. Has the hardest 13 second shift in the entire league. Uh, and uh, also an amateur piano player, or amateur, I assume. Very Professional? amateur. Very yes. amateur, okay. Yes. So um, you are here because uh, I could use a little help in talking about music, so you have way more insight than I do, and I have three New York City nonprofits that are connected to the idea of music in one way or another. So I, I'll tell you the three. One's an organization that helps support uh, jazz musicians um, as they get older, and they don't have pensions, they don't have any health care, all this stuff, so they, they kind of help them. Okay. We'll finish with something called Daniel's Music Foundation, which is for, um, helps students with disabilities, or their students have disabilities, and they kind of just do all kinds of stuff, and it's a, that's a cool organization. But the first organization is something called Building Beats, so this guy is a DJ,
1: and he teaches, do you ever DJ? Uh, I did actually. You did? In, in, in college, uh, my last name is Mail, and I was DJ Mailman. I had my own radio show <laughs> at college and I was delivering the best music to the Susquehanna <laughs> Valley and I was the one-stop shop for all things Matchbox 20 oh. in the larger Susquehanna Valley in central Pennsylvania. Oh,
0: I was hoping you'd still have one more Mailman. One more um, Mailman? Cliché somewhere. Okay, yeah. there you go. Both of our <laughs> listeners loved it. They were really about it.
1: <laughs>
0: so, uh, so this guy he teaches like I think mainly middle school students how to DJ, how to create music. So they show them all these free online tools to make music, make their own music, and pu- post it. And but also how to promote themselves. So they then like are able to spin this off and become entrepreneurs and um, like get DJing gigs and go out and make money and, and kind of start start a career uh, from as early as middle school. So, cool. um, we'll listen to the interview and then talk about it and yeah, talk about it. here with Fee Pham the executive director and founder of Building Beats which was such a cool organization when I came across it and I was so happy you returned my email I I probably won't do it justice so you just tell us really quickly what does Building Beats do
2: cool so um, Building Beats we develop and expand DJ and music education programs uh, that teach life leadership and entrepreneurial skills for young people all throughout the city
0: alright so where did this idea come from? Like where did you first have that kind of spark?
2: Um, So the initial spark was the summer of 2008, so 10 years ago now. Okay. Um, It was uh, right before my senior year of college. I was uh, at NYU majoring neuroscience. I remember this exact moment. Um, I was working in a lab, a neuroscience lab at NYU cutting up rat brains for the summer and uh, it was nice kind evening. of mundane <laughs> but really just good good space to just think okay and I would always have uh, I think it was WNYC or NPR or something on uh, I remember there was just one day where I came up with his ideas Like I wanted to start music programs uh, one because my previous background as a DJ music really just uh, encapsulated in my, my mental thoughts all the time, um, and I wanted to show young people how music can be a really positive force for them to do things. Right. Um, and I remember being in the lab that day, it's, uh, hey, this is something that I think I would be really excited to start out and get involved in. Right. Um, uh, the last ten years has been really a work in progress to make it a thing. Every week, every month, just looking back on our work and our growth, uh, continuing to build upon the initial idea and uh, see where it goes from there.
0: And you, you really—it really is a thing, because you said you told. Let's see, three hundred youth every week your program reaches.
2: Yeah, just about. And.
0: I just wrote this note that you do over a thousand workshops. How how like is that in the last is that last year you did a thousand workshops?
2: Yeah, on a school year basis, we do just over a thousand for the last two three years now. All right, so this um, is
0: definitely a thing. You yeah, it's it's been <laughs>
2: growing, which is really cool. Right, just going back resetting to two thousand eight, um, the initial idea was to start music studios for young people internationally. Um, I don't know how I was going to make it sustainable, but the goal was that they would run it and sustain it themselves and use the internet to connect with each other to collaborate. Um, so the initial idea was a whole global thing to get young people to, to connect over music. Okay. Um, a couple of years later, got some money, got some of my first partners. We started a DJ school in Brazil. Um, that was a good learning experience to understand that, uh, I don't know how to make this sustainable being based in New York, <laughs> uh, put the whole Building Beats project on pause, um, started it up again in 2013, uh, in New York City. I said, you know, if I'm going to do this. I got to be there in person to really be more in charge and really encapsulate a lot of the learnings, uh, day to day, uh, summer of 2013, we did four workshops. Um, one in the Bronx, three in Chinatown at a uh, summer program and fast forward to now it's, it's grown to yeah, a thousand per year and we're hoping to grow more.
0: Yeah, that's a huge growth too. And you've had some really cool students come through the program. You were telling me that you had a student um, who's now currently a junior, or I guess he just finished his junior year?
2: I think he's an incoming junior. Oh, yeah. incoming junior. So okay. he just uh, finished his
0: sophomore year. Just finished
2: his sophomore year of high school.
0: He's done some really cool gigs, right? These some some of your best gigs, I guess, for the students that you've had. Yeah, tell mm-hmm. us about that.
2: Yeah, so his name is Alberto. Um, I met him when he was a seventh grader, so about four years now. I was teaching, uh, it was one of our first workshops at a school in Bushwick, a middle school. Taught him and his class uh, how to make music uh, using Chromebooks available at the school. Uh, we were using a cloud-based software, so students were able to make music uh, not just in our workshops but continue working on the same sessions outside of the workshops. Mm-hmm. Um, and that class was, it was a, an amazing learning experience for us because. We came to realize that uh, these schools don't have the best technology so we had to go to where the school's at. Mm-hmm. And uh, our approach of using cloud-based software um, uh, was awesome because it was accessible. Schools were increasingly using more netbooks, Chromebooks, computers that you can't install any software on.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and week after week I would go to that class, it was a Friday afternoon class. and. Hearing the students, Alberto, a few of the other students, talking about how they would finish their homework and continue working on the music after they did their homework, uh,
0: was really inspiring. So they go home and they're still working on this
2: stuff. Exactly. Home, right? and, and yeah, oh, Alberto cool. just stood out because every week I was like, "How are you getting so much better at this?" And it was like. We didn't even learn or you know teach you all these concepts <laughs> right. last Friday, right. so that's when they told uh, told me it was like yeah we're continuing to just you know tinker around and continue to make music, whenever they have the time. Um, so it really helped us build a strong thesis uh, and really one of our theories of change is we have to use accessible tools, uh, internet-based tools like that was was really helpful t- to help us understand that. It gave students access outside of our workshops um, and really allowed us to just teach the students really something that could be a spark and if they're interested, they could continue working on it. Um, Yeah, now four years later, uh, Alberto got his own DJ controller. So he's also DJing as well as making music. Um, Just last week, he was uh, at a summer program at Overland College um, for uh, studying sound and the science of sound, mm-hmm. so his passion for audio and music production has just continued taking him to new spaces. Right. Uh, but through the years, um, either through his his own you know desire to get more into music and our guidance, he's been part of a Carnegie Hall of Youth Ensemble, uh, DJed at the Met Museum, uh, DJed at the Brooklyn Public Library. He's, he's, he's DJed all over the city now. Yeah, that's a pretty and good
0: resume for yeah a, continuing
2: uh, to get gigs. A sophomore and, in high school. Uh, it's you know so students like him really just get us excited for our work because sure. Uh, you know it's you know, we're not going to always be there to handhold for students, but uh, as technology continues advancing in society and as uh, these pathways and partnerships with all these youth development organizations strengthen. Uh, he's able to find his way to continue growing as a young person and as a music maker.
0: That's a, yeah, as your program has, has grown, you have gone out of just, not just to schools, but you're now working with detention centers?
2: Yeah, so we just finished a partnership uh, in a detention center up in the Bronx. Um, and also we work with the Department of Probation. In various uh, settings through a program called neon arts uh, neon standing for neighborhood opportunity networks um, really d- doing the same workshops that we do in our after-school programs for these young people as well right. um, really as uh, hopefully a spark to get them excited in terms of music making and continuing to break the stigma uh, that uh, you need to have money uh, to rent a studio, or you need to buy hardware. Um, with technology getting much more accessible, uh, we want to show a young person that they can just be creative wherever they're at, uh, with their phones, uh, with you know the computers, the computer labs they have, you know in their libraries or in various settings and spaces that they're around. Cool. Uh,
0: are there any students that you worked with in um, the, from the probation program or detention that kind of stand out to you? Anyone uh, memorable?
2: Yeah, so there was a student Call him Jay for now. Okay. Yeah. Um, he was in our program at the detention center in the Bronx. That program was a little bit different than our other programs in that we're not allowed to bring in anything with internet access there. Oh, interesting. So we would come in with iPads. Uh, iPads have, uh, you know, a multitude of beat-making apps uh, and resources available. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would go there weekly. We taught him the basics of beat-making using an app called iMachine. Uh, But from there he wanted to rap and rap on on some of the beats he wanted to, uh, you know, he he was creating Um, so there were a few sessions where we come in with a microphone record some of the kids raps and uh, Jay was really passionate about this and he got released he got sent home from the program which was you know good and uh, just through our partnership with Carnegie Hall um, we directed him to the Carnegie Hall. Uh, they have a program called Studio Fifty Seven that mm-hmm. uh, they run on Saturdays, It's just like an open workshop for youth throughout the city. Uh, so we got him to go to there and just continue on his craft of music making. Um, and it's it's yeah, really awesome to see that you know, we can help him just be inspired with the creative process of music making.
0: That's awesome. You know, obviously the DJing and the, and the music making is a big part of what you do, um, and a lot of people have gone on done things with that have you found that anyone really picked up on this sort of leadership and the social media and entrepreneurial side and kind of went in a direction maybe you didn't expect Is that anything like that happened
2: you know i I don't want to bring it up again but alberto is okay uh, he he is talented on the music side but Mm -hmm. he's able to go out and get gigs and stuff on his own now and uh, we just see him uh, on his on his instagram just doing all sorts of big things he uh was invited to take a tour at Hot 97. Met Colin Kaepernick, um, which we thought was, why didn't you invite us, Alberto? <laughs> um, but you know, whenever we run into him in events, we see him with his business cards, handing it out to people, getting gigs, um, and then, yeah, a lot of the gigs that he has now is is really his own work and his own doing. And this past year, I saw him, uh, he was interning for an organization called Teens Take Charge, okay. uh, a podcast series uh, of teenagers talking about uh, segregation in the Department of Education school system in New York. So, oh, wow. Um, uh, I think he is a good example, again, of just how music can take you to so many different places. Yeah, that's really exciting.
0: Okay, so you we have a song here uh, from Khalil Almighty. Yep. Uh, Madison's Garden, so we'll play this, but is there anything you want to say before?
2: Um, I thought it was really well produced. Um, okay. Khalil was a student in our program I believe three years ago now. He was a senior in high school at the time. Uh, we have a partnership with a program called Simba and they work with youth uh, either in transition housing or you know in homeless shelters um, uh, all throughout the city, uh, primarily Brooklyn. Uh, Khalil we met through that program uh and uh, one his music was you know really awesome to hear uh, but even better to hear was he went on to go to college and majored in music production and music business oh wow. so we hope you know our class was an inspiration and right. started on his path towards you know advancing his music career
0: cool all right so this is called uh, madison's garden yeah I guess that's, um, it was just like, it was way more positive of a sound than I guess I was anticipating, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's something that he was able to make just in the software online.
2: Yeah, yeah. So he was using, uh, at that time, we were using a tool called audiotool.com. Right. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. We could uh, play the next one called uh, Legend by Chelsea Banks. Uh, Chelsea was an 8th grader when she made this song, uh, I think two years ago now. Uh, Really awesome song, Uh, she uh, is uh, not so much a beat maker, but a rapper, and this song is actually about her grandfather who passed away, Um, so it's a really emotional song, but uh, I think she found an outlet in our class to really express some sort of emotions. Right. Uh, through the, the music making process, which I thought was really cool. That's amazing.
4: Chelsea Banks. Gouda. Listen, Grandpa, you went from being my pops to being my legend. You that's so unexpected, I don't get it. Maybe it was to learn a lesson. I learned so much, but it wasn't enough. Every year that goes by, it hurts more. And be a bit player but always be in my blood, making you proud. Will always be in my guts. Listen, the man that killed you will always be a killer. No matter what, he will never be forgiven. Damn, Grandpa, why you have to leave so soon, huh? I will never see the real you, huh? It hurts to know that I'm by myself. It hurts to know that I'm not myself. It hurts to know that I have changed ever since November 1st. I lost you for the words and you, is gone forever. It's crazy, it's been four years since you left us. Shit is crazy, how you dying, huh? That's why I cry. Just looking back to a pictures breaks my heart. Because that's something I'll never get back. All the smiles, all the tears, all the laughs. But for a while, I'll never get it back and I respect what people say but losing you cause a lot of pain
0: Wow, that was really amazing and do you is, is rapping part of the program or is that something like she's like I want to add this to the
2: Um, yeah I think it, it's really based off of our facilitator who we call workshop leaders Okay Um, some of our classes, yeah kids may not have the desire to make beats uh, but we want to go to what engages them and a lot right. of these students do like songwriting and rapping and uh, we've manage how to figure out how to turn a school classroom or hallway into a recording studio and i think it's it's really innovative and cool from our team uh but really to yeah uh, inspire the students to show them that you know you can really start making songs anywhere these days. you've
0: had a really great growth over the last few years what's uh, what's the future for building beats
2: so we are building out uh, a few different opportunities, I think, to get more people involved. Uh, one, we're teaching our workshops to companies um, as team building activities. Uh, one way to, to continue supporting our, our you know, funding, uh, but also bringing our young people along as teaching assistants, uh, giving them experience to be teachers in a different setting, and connecting them to the corporate world. Um, we just got our first office uh, up in Williamsburg, uh, we've been there for a year now and we're building it out to be a space to do more workshops. Uh, we've been booking you know, small private one-on-one workshops where people are interested. Um, another way to continue teaching people how to make music, uh, but also diversifying our, our customer base. Uh, and then uh, another thing we're working on is uh, trying to integrate our work into the school day as well uh, in two ways. one. Uh, working with a regular class like an English class. Uh, We just taught with a class where students were reading To Kill a Mockingbird and we would go in and teach the students how to make music to express the social justice and civil rights themes that we're learning from the book. And uh, the second way is working directly with teachers as professional development opportunities. Uh, So we're providing workshops geared towards the teachers and showing them how they can use music and incorporate into their classroom to, you know, make sure their classroom is uh, fun and engaging and a new way to really get kids attracted to the, the curriculum. This
0: is great. Well, um, yeah, thanks for coming out on such a crazy weather day and, uh, yeah, and telling us about Building Beats. Cool.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: That was building beats. What did you think, Brian? I
1: thought it was a construction company (laughs) assembling Apple headphones at first. Uh, (laughs) That was... I really enjoyed that. There were a few things that struck me. Yeah, I think... One thing that struck me is when I first was hearing and discussed the mission, I was thinking that you know, is the goal for everyone just to become their own DJ? You know, here they're often in middle school. He mentioned eighth grade, seventh grade at one point, and I thought it was cool how it clearly kind of adapted to where the students are and became this outlet for any kind of expression. Like I thought the Chelsea Bank story in particular was really cool about how here she was discussing the death of her grandpa, and that was clearly this outlet for her just to get that out. You can tell that wasn't for the world; that was for her to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a that's that music can do and I'm sure wasn't maybe wasn't his original mission but I think it's cool how that got integrated along the way
0: yeah and I think this is why I want you in the thing because clearly I went straight to the technical what that meant as far as oh she raps on this and I got very technical because I was completely uncomfortable with the emotion <laughs> and expressing it so I'm really glad that you're here to to at least talk about the emotional side of that whole thing
1: yeah I think <laughs> no of course I that that really struck me and then also another thing that struck me was just like how it's music is clearly the gateway in this way of I mean, he brings up Alberto a few times if he clearly has the talent for the PR and he has a talent for the music but then also here he is interning someplace where he's having dialogue about segregation in schools and what that means and I think it's, it's um, you know especially if he's working at detention centers and if he, they're going to schools where there's such high need areas they're in need of any sort of gateway to get them connected to other opportunities and how music is the start and music might not appeal to everyone right off the bat but all of a sudden you, you make that connection with someone else because of it and then that person opened it, it just it's so door opening across the board mm-hmm. and that really struck me
0: yeah no they're doing amazing things as soon as I read about them I was like oh please please you know get interview. you know I would love to make this interview happen and the guy was awesome yeah um and in fact I you know this is actually a good opportunity to bring this up um if you're interested in hearing uh, Alberto, yeah, DJ. He is DJing, and this is the first time I've mentioned it on the podcast. He's DJing at an event that I'm putting together for the podcast. Will well, you get the chance to come and hear Alberto's going to DJ? Fee, the guy who's on there. Uh, actually, our next, the next person is also going to be at the event. I'll show it to you here. So it's a, it's going to be a weird event. It's a combination. Sounds amazing. <laughs> you, the, the head shake, because it's, it's going to be a weird thing. It's going to be networking and fundraising, but also uh, um, Alberto's going to be there doing 90s hip hop. So it's going to be, it could be an absolute disaster of a combination of things, but I think it's going to be all right. I think it's going to be cool. So people will get an opportunity to come out to this event and meet uh, people in this episode and other episodes that we're doing and chat with them and ask the questions that uh, I completely forgot to ask or clearly missed the boat on. So. I
1: will be there. Very fittingly, Tuesday nights is when I have my piano lessons, so I'll have to move one of them. But I will absolutely be there. That's oh, nice. that's awesome! Fantastic. Um, I think it'd be a good opportunity for you. I think after they played the first beat, your comment was that it was a very positive sound. So <laughs> I feel like being around some other musically inclined folks, you can pick up a thing or two. <laughs> yeah, see,
0: <laughs> I told you your music expertise. So you didn't think you were—you thought you were just an amateur musician. But like like, I'm really <laughs> terrible, obviously, at expressing uh, what music is. Um, all right, so yeah, I, I started to mention that the next interview is uh, something called the Jazz Foundation of America, and um, the guy you interview is a musician's advocate. So he actually works uh, one-on, I don't know, I guess one-on-one, on one, but he works with the musicians themselves. So they provide a whole bunch of uh, social services, but they also try to to connect these uh, jazz musicians to different gigs and stuff like that. So. So yeah, anyways, let me get straight into that. Great. So uh, here in the Jazz Foundation of America with Will Glass, who is the, uh, who's a musician's advocate and uh, program manager.
5: How, long, how old is it? Uh, well, it was founded in 1989, um, well before my time here. So going back into learned history here, but um, a group of musicians and um, industry professionals including the famous pianist, Dr. Billy Taylor. Um, and people from the music industry, including Herb Storfer um, and some others. There was a group of five or six who, who founded the foundation, um, recognizing this great need for jazz and blues musicians who don't have the safety net that other professionals do. Um, you know, you spend your career working in clubs, and even if you're very successful, you don't necessarily have a pension or retirement savings, um, you can go many years without health care, and then, you know, one setback can wipe out your savings or put you into debt, and, and life is generally um, more precarious uh, for professional musicians. Um, so it was founded um, with that in mind, and, and the emer- the Jazz Musicians Emergency Fund um, is, is still what keeps us going with our, our social work cases. and. Um, and that was in the mix from the beginning and as as time went on, um, it was realized that, that uh, the best way to help musicians is to keep them working. So um, shortly after 9-11, as, as a lot of people were facing struggle within, which was around the time that Wendy Oxenhorn joined the foundation. Um, she's our founding director. Um, she was our executive director for um, all these intervening years and she, um, helped to get Rolling the Jazz on the Schools program with the idea that you can provide steady work to musicians in schools so that um, musicians can have an extra gig they can rely on. What, so, what do they do in schools? Um, so it's, it's a steady gig nowadays, it's a steady gig for 300 elderly musicians nationwide, and they do an hour-long performance. Um, it's a concert. It's uh, an engaging educational concert, and there's little lessons here and there. They kind of have to tailor it to the students, depending on what age they are. Um, but, you know, at, at our New York concerts, there will frequently be a band leader saying, have you ever taken the A train? And the kids are like, yeah, and then they probably take the A train <laughs> by... Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn, who, you know, may have lived in the area where the concert's taking take in place, or they might do a Louis Armstrong number uh, to school out in Queens and point out that he lived there, and there's a lot of interesting tie-ins to the geography of New York. Um, but it's there, and, and then the program doubled in size after Hurricane Katrina, uh, when we uh, put a thousand musicians back to work, and it's so, like cause this
0: is a this is a national organization, right? You mm-hmm. you're based in New York City, but we're based in York New York City,
5: yeah. But there are musicians in need all over, and um, and we did, um, hugely branch out in New Orleans after Katrina. We have one staffer who lives there full time, and runs the Jazz in the Schools program there. Um, and um, we yeah we're still very involved there, and and you know it, it's sort of the um the silver lining to the dark cloud of a lot of tragedy has been that we've gotten to know a lot of musicians in areas where disaster has struck so that new orleans for sure but also um, baton rouge louisiana where there was a terrible flooding in 2016 and um hundreds of musicians had flooding many lost their homes we got to know a lot of people in Houston. Um, not as many as we were expecting, um, but we worked with a lot of people in Houston, and we're we're active in Puerto Rico right now um, since Hurricane Maria.
0: I always worry about this question. Like, who are some of your favorite uh, musicians that you've met? Always, who are some of the? What are some more memorable uh, people that you've met?
5: Um, well, our uh, our casework is confidential, and I can't. Uh,
0: oh yeah, you don't have to type in names.
5: Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but suffice to say that like many many greats of of jazz and blues have have come through across our desks um and you know people you would never think might need help or people in the bands of someone who work for someone very famous like you wouldn't think they need help but like many musicians who've who've played on a lot of great um recordings and i mean there's just so many it's hard to know where to begin Um,
0: yeah that's why it's a bad question
5: (laughs) and no it's it's a great question and and you know there's no end. i mean you can go on our website and see that um you know we've helped people like odetta and freddie hubbard and cecil payne um and and very famous successful musicians who had hardship um and then it can happen to anyone Um, but just to give a few recent examples because um those who who make it into their 90s and hundreds uh, are always really memorable, and I had a gig last week with a tenor saxophonist named Ted Brown who um, moved to New York and saw Charlie Parker play on 52nd Street in the late 40s, and he started studying with Lenny Tristano, um, who is sort of a cult figure and uh, and a hugely influential composer who had kind of a workshop in the early 50s. Um, and musicians like Lee Konitz and Warren Marsh, and kind of a whole school of bebop kind of came through his his workshop, and Ted was right there in his workshop in the early 50s, and Ted worked with all those musicians, he moved to the west coast, and just a really fascinating backstory. Um, as it happens, Ted had a whole other sort of day job as they say in computer programming and um and wasn't always active and um but then he kind of came back in with lee konitz in the 70s he made it to japan in his 80s i believe for the first time and and was greeted by fans having him sign his records from the 50s and um and ted just did his first gig with us last week um and actually not in our jazz in the schools program we have a whole other program called the gig fund which is public programming, and one of our new partners is New York Public Libraries. Uh, but there was the Ted Brown Trio, and Ted is 91 years old and sounding great and um, out there representing us. And it's just amazing uh, to meet someone like that, and also to hear them play is is great. Um, and you know, there's a lot like that that come to mind. I mean, just from a different um, subgenre uh, from the blues. One in Baton Rouge. We got to know a lot of musicians who were going through a terrible crisis with having two three four or five feet of water through their homes and having to throw out everything they owned and we helped to pay to um to clean up their homes and and remove mold Uh, we helped people get new furniture new instruments um and all kinds of things. Um, and one person we met during the course of all that um, was Henry Gray, uh, who's now, he must be 92 or even 93. And he is a living legend of the blues who who was in Howlin' Wolf's band for 30 years and was a real pioneer of a style you hear all, all over the place. And, um, and we got to know him as well as an incredible um, community of blues musicians in baton rouge and and henry came up and played our annual fundraiser at the apollo um in 2017 and um, yeah there he was with bruce willis um, playing <laughs> piano um so yeah i mean i, I could go on and on there's sure. there are sidemen on records that i listened to and got into jazz listening to and you're a musician so i'm a musician i play the drums um i've uh, I had an interest in music early on, and started playing uh, the drums when I was eight, and got really into jazz starting around when I was twelve or thirteen. I remained interested in other kinds of music too. And then
0: now you do you get you're getting a chance to like kind of meet some of those people that you listened to when you were.
5: Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, cool. I visited. Really uh, cool. I visited a, a famous musician who has played on scores and scores of records and talked to him about a a particularly famous record he was on it was funny because i went to see our band play we have part of a wing of our jazz in the schools program provides music in the lobby of englewood hospital um It's a very special partnership we have with them, that's where Dizzy Gillespie was Um, towards the end of his life when he had medical difficulty and the doctors that treated him there he asked them to promise to take care of jazz musicians and since then Englewood hospital has provided millions of dollars of of pro bono medical care and we've uh, when we have musicians with no insurance um, sometimes and in many circumstances we can send them there and and part of the relationship is we have uh, bands that play in their lobby um, four days a week and so I went to see one of those bands last week but I went from there to visit one of our musician clients who's in a nursing home and um, and I was like, "Hey, I was at this studio and of course he remembered it and um, and it's just kind of amazing to, to think about right so, um, But, um, yeah, many of the players from from records I knew growing up, and and it's even more interesting as someone who's interested in um, all the history that's not recorded because you could have someone who's absolutely brilliant player, and if you see them play now, they'll still blow your mind. But maybe they were with Lionel Hampton for 10 years or Stanley Turandine for seven years or or something like that but they weren't on any of the records because there's maybe they called billy higgins that day instead or they wanted this the star player there's all kinds of reasons that you know some musicians aren't on those records or and so they aren't in the historical record in the same way and then they're not on the internet in the same way and this day and age meeting musicians who um will just like have such an impact on you when you see them play. And to realize that you can't even like find them on the internet is, is amazing to see, but there are really these um, deep strata of living music history that are out there. Um, and unfortunately, everyone's struggling in one way or another, but you know, that's something that um, we're helping to, to keep going. Yeah, I didn't even think of that, like
0: yes. the idea that maybe just kind of fall through the cracks, I guess, recording like the cracks of the recording history.
5: Yeah, and especially um, getting out there outside of New York, where there's a lot of cities with fascinating local history, and you know you'll you'll hear about Rasan Roland Kirk being from Cleveland or. Um, Elvin Jones being from Detroit, or it's I mean, Detroit's a different case, but, um, there's so many musicians from there, and, um, but there's little local histories, but then as you get deeper, there's, there's quite a lot of, uh, amazing music out there, and, um, it's not all recorded in the same way, um, and even in New York, you know, there's players who are very respected by their peers, um, who um, have great command of the instrument and have, you know, many decades of experience, but if you were to go to your conventional um, channels like uh, websites and, and research, like you won't find out as much about them. So right. it's it's really interesting to see. Um, so it's it's great, especially to offer those people a place to perform. Um, because it just has such benefit that, like, they get the gig and other people get to hear the masters and the people in their band get to play with this master. And um, there's just sort of, like, amplified um, benefit.
0: Have you seen, have you gone to see the, um, it's called Jazz in the Schools? hmm So do you have any, anything jump out at you as, like a, like, a kind of a memory that kind of rises to the top? I can't imagine that many kids really know
5: jazz. Yeah, I mean that's that's some of the beauty of it is um that it's um kids who don't get to see live music very much and, mm-hmm. and especially live jazz. So um I remember going to see a jazz in the school's show um at our partner the Wadley Secondary School. They have a wonderful library and a wonderful librarian um, named Paul Mcintosh and we've had a monthly gig there for years, and I remember once going to see one of our bands, and it was a quartet, and as they were playing, and it was beautiful, and the kids were into it, and it was kind of like a R&B thing, and I suddenly realized that I knew all four people in the band very well through our emergency fund um, and the casework, and that three of them had just been through cancer, and that we'd helped them with their rent and with their utility bills and that they had all beat it and they were all here on stage and having this like moment and the fourth person was just someone that i speak to on the phone every day with with all sometimes just about gigs and sometimes just about um a bill or you know needing an instrument repair or whatever but um but that moment really stuck with me for sure
0: that's cool Mm -hmm what
5: is the reaction of, of
0: uh what is do you have any like uh, reactions of the kids when they kind of um coming out of this yeah coming out of these
5: i mean it's a it's a joyful experience um it's amazing to see um because w- when the music catches you sometimes you can't help it and see these kids kind of experience that for the first time is is amazing and you know it's not always like that um uh of course, like... Yeah, I worked in schools. So. <laughs> yeah, right, you know, there's there's days when, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of distraction, um, but the music always reaches everyone in one way or another, and there are, are many shows that um, where it's really a, a collective sense of, um, of uplift. And, yeah, I've seen kids dance in the aisles. I remember one time we have a fantastic Latin jazz group that's led by Ray Mantia, um, Ray has appeared on hundreds of recordings. He played in all the great Latin orchestras, including Ray Barretto's and Tito Puente's. He has a small uh, trio or quartet that he brings to his jazz in the schools gigs, um, and the the bassist is named Cucho Martinez. And here's an example of someone I i wouldn't have come across if i weren't in this job and he's an incredible bassist and they're a great band but cucho originally came to the states from venezuela as a master player of the maracas and a particular style particular to venezuela so in the middle of the set the first time i saw them do this um at a school uptown he did his maracas solo and and it's very like theatric and he's like He's older now and can't move as quickly, right. but uh, but he he arcs his arms around in big circles and and, and moves them closer to the microphone and and I, the entire auditorium like he would swing the maracas around and all the kids were like whoa whoa like this big <laughs> everyone shouting in unison and it was like it was pretty amazing I'd never seen a oh, that's maracas <laughs> like that and everyone could kind of feel it in oh. that moment so
0: oh uh, that's very really cool.
5: Have you gotten a chance to to play
0: at all with, with some of these guys? Uh,
5: yeah, a little bit. I you know I um, I started here five years ago after volunteering for many years, and um, I didn't let on that I'm a uh, musician um, right off the bat. I didn't want the musicians to think like I'm here trying to like yeah. get gigs or something. Um, but you know, here and there it will come up and. Um, and one musician I knew from before I started here had me sit in, and we have a regular weekly Monday night jam downstairs, um, which is long-running. Um, so I guess in the past year, I started to um, actually sit in on the jam here and there. And it's it's been really fun, because at this point, there's people I've known for a couple of years who didn't know that I play, and it's it's been really fun to... Um, to get to play with them a little because there's, there's a lot to learn and the, the feedback is so valuable. It's, right. you know, masters who've spent their lives with the music so it's amazing. That's really cool. Mm-hmm.
0: I think I'm um, um, I'm want to wind everything up. I think you had mentioned a couple programs you wanted to throw out there. Sure. And, and if you haven't mentioned them already, I guess.
5: Yeah. Uh, I, guess I mentioned briefly the Gig Fund but that's um, kind of growing um, in exciting ways it's about four years old and it was um you know for years jazz in the schools was too full to accommodate all the musicians who need gigs so we'd be would call every day can i get a jazz in the schools gig and it was um you know we're limited and 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 with it being a steady monthly gig we couldn't just add other bands all the time and plus we're really trying to help the older musicians so with the gig fund we can open it up a little bit more to the like 40 to 60 crowd if we like and the idea was just free public programming um, because we have all these musicians, we want to put them back to work. And if we can put them in a place that's visible in public, um, wouldn't that be great? So, um, our first big, great partner was Grow NYC, who have farmers markets all over the city. And we still do a few concerts a month with them, and that's always fun. Um, and we have worked with the Brooklyn Museum. Um, and we have new partnerships that are very exciting. Um, I mentioned the public libraries, which was a lot of potential there. Um, we've done about half a dozen shows so far. And the other one is uh, the New York City Parks Department. And um, we have a great partnership evolving with them um, in their recreation centers and the parks. So it's all, um, super encouraging and lots of fun and and um, we also have a new website so finally we can get this information out to the public in a way that's easy to follow so at jazzfoundation.org um, you can see our calendar and, and upcoming gigs so we're going to see a lot more
0: jazz musicians around the city yeah that's exactly. awesome that's mm-hmm. great mm-hmm. Um, yeah okay cool well this is this has been awesome I love listening to the, uh, um, these stories these, mm-hmm. this is very cool thank cool. you very much yeah. for, uh, for
5: chatting with me thank you it's great
0: Foundation of America. What you think of them?
1: That was amazing because I would never think of musicians, jazz and blues artists, whatever that kind of audience, as being a group in need. Of, mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know. I, it's such important work that there's an audience there that doesn't have the resources that they need and I also think there's something cool embedded in their mission of I, I was doing some research on them and it said you know they're helping the people that have always kind of picked us up of you know mm-hmm. we yeah. get a lot out of their work and then here they are looking after them but what a, what a lens into how certain institutions don't have the the benefits that those in more secure employment or in other areas do have was a really cool
0: Really cool look at that. Like, I wonder how much of that is the idea of when you're a musician is you have to look like you're in complete control and like, you know, it's a performance yeah. completely like so when we look at a, a, a really talented musician, we're just looking at someone who is, uh, you know, un- um, invincible.
1: Right. There's a vulnerability that you don't see when someone is so talented in front of you and mm-hmm. to get the back end look of these people needed to. And it makes sense when you hear him talk about it. Um, yeah, that's a really good point about... Thank you. ...it's still lost on you. Yeah, <laughs> everybody gets one, right? <laughs> um,
0: yeah, no, I, I, uh, the, place, the place is amazing. And, um, uh, I mean, just from the when I walked in, it was it was uh, walking off the street. I walk in the door, and there's a band playing downstairs in one of the rehearsal spaces that was just amazing. Like, I wanted to immediately go hear, hear them play. Uh, and... I walk in. And there's a guy just hanging out. He's, a, he's kind of the door guy, and he points me to the elevator and how to get to the, the you know the floor or whatever. So I'm waiting there for the elevator to come down, and he walked away, and he was just kind of looking out the window and started tapping on the desk and the and the door because he was kind of between them, and it was amazing just hearing him play the door, like hearing him play the desk and the door was was unbelievable. Like he was the way he. I can't even. There's, uh, there's no way I could recreate it. Like I could have sat there for and listened to him play the door and the yeah. Better than that. Better than that.
1: Yeah. That's hard to believe. <laughs> go over and grab the trash can, and start yeah, banging them. Right. I'm like, sir, you need to go, please. This is a professional institution. <laughs> <laughs> that's wow.
0: Yeah. No, it was it was, it was like very cool. Drought. Like he just had it like in his fingertips kind of thing. Nice. Uh yeah, that's all uh the, the whole so the whole place just oozes jazz and music and 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 talent, you know?
1: Yeah, for sure. Another thing that struck me about this was the idea that there's a certain exclusivity at the top and those associated with it are, are somewhat left behind and, and you brought up the question, you used the phrase falling through the cracks, which is a really good way of putting it. I guess everybody gets two. Um, uh, <laughs> two points, alright. Just the idea of you know these people who are associated with Charlie Parker for X amount of years and they're probably just Brilliant in their in their you know musical prowess and the fact that then they can kind of fall into this camp that they work with now is just it's really it speaks to the insecurity of those kinds of professions of how good you need to be to avoid this mm-hmm. kind of you know right. being in need here um, but also the importance of this of this work of there really is this wide audience for for those that are in need that. Jazz Foundation of America is able to help. Uh, Also, two very random things that struck me. One, musicians live to be really, really old. I feel like he was dropping 80 and 90-year-olds the entire time. I'm like, that'd be great, you know? Right. And then the other is libraries are the MVP of the podcast, of who would have thought that being a venue, but even in the first for Building Beats, Alberto was performing at a library, Mm -hmm. now here. I don't know. I never thought of that as like a venue that can kind of bring music down to earth to those that might not get it. But now that I hear myself say it, that makes so much sense of... You know, I feel like libraries have been in the news recently in terms of you know Amazon's relationship with them and whatnot. Of I feel like libraries are making a comeback in 2018. Cool. Uh, so uh, that
0: was the Jazz Foundation of America, and I'm going to end on this. Uh, the final interview is with something called Daniel's Music Foundation, and it is um, uh, it is a father-son interview. They are they run the organization. They've been running it for I think uh, 12 years, and. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of the most powerful interviews I think I have ever uh, had to do. Let's hear it, I'm excited. Beautiful uh, Daniel's Music Foundation space with co-founders Ken Trush and Daniel Trush, uh, the chairman and president, respectively. Uh, thank you guys for being on my my little podcast. You're thank so you. Well we appreciate yeah, you having you. So um, tell me, uh, maybe really quickly, just um, run through what is Daniel's Music Foundation, and then I'd love to hear how it got started. Sure.
6: Daniels Music Foundation is a nonprofit that provides music programs for people with disabilities, but also to the general public. Um, and we also have a diversity awareness program where we try to build a bridge between the community we serve and the general public.
0: Great. And so how did this uh, you mentioned earlier that this is a, this organization is 12 years old, and yeah. so t- tell me about how it got started.
7: Okay. So, it got started 12 years ago because my father one day asked me what I wanted to do with my life and I said that I wanted to work with music and children. So then we expanded the idea to include all people with disabilities. It actually goes beyond that, right? Why don't you tell everyone what happened in 1997? Oh yeah, okay. So on March 9th of 1997, while I was playing basketball, One Sunday afternoon in my school gym, one of my five undetected brain aneurysms ruptured in my head. I went into a coma, and I was in a coma for 30 days, and I was in the hospital and rehab for 341 days. But who's counting, (laughs) right? (laughs) Wow.
6: Okay. And so during that period, we thought we lost him couple times the second night the doctors actually woke me up and said get your wife to say goodbye he's not going to make it and he made it Um, he was in a wheelchair for three years but we used music in his recovery even when he was in a coma we would play different songs it was soothing we felt it was soothing for Daniel and it was soothing for our family and then when he got out he was using music we did some research and we realized that music activates more parts of the brain than almost any other activity so we hired a music therapist
7: and Daniel, you were a musician before? Yeah, before my injury I played the guitar and the trumpet and since I've taken up the keyboard and I sing. Wow. And so we learned that Daniel was attracted to music.
6: Um, it was something that he went to. He we went to his keyboard to create, to, to play, to practice. And we went online um, after, right, at Hunter College. Yeah. And. Once you tell everyone what happened there? Because sometimes uh, yeah. what people
7: say is like a lightning bolt, right? Yeah, sure. So I was taking a variety of classes at Hunter College. So I took a music class, a psychology mm-hmm. class, a sociology class. And then I took another music class with a very special woman named Stephanie Jensen Moulton who helped me find my love for music because she just kept on encouraging me take more and more classes with her.
6: And what was amazing with Stephanie is I would sit outside the classroom while Daniel was in and I would ask the professor once or twice a semester how Daniel was doing and she said he's doing amazing I'd like him to take ear training with me next semester, can he?
0: Right. And that was
6: the lightning bolt. So I went online and I started looking up music and disabilities and what I found was some great programs
7: that were music therapy But Daniel was already having, what, five therapies a day that were just me and a therapist. So we wanted to make Daniel's music foundation more group-oriented. So that that people can be with other people around their own age or their own ability level. Right. Because what we found is that, you know, when we join. This new community,
6: right? this, the largest minority in the United States, there are 56 million people with disabilities in the United States, one after sick. When we, jo- when we joined this minority, that there was a lot of isolation and a lot of therapy. But we couldn't find a place where people were accepted as they are. And because we again, music therapy is fantastic, Daniel actually had a music therapists, but we couldn't find a social atmosphere around music. And we, we inherently felt
7: that music was social. So we started, right, with one? Yeah, we started with one keyboard class and only five members back in 2006. And today we have this whole big, beautiful music center 8,700 square feet. It is
0: five studios. You guys can tour beforehand. It's amazing. It's really beautiful. Thank you. We
6: serve thousands of people with disabilities every year. We have a core program that serves about 225 nine months of the year and then we have contracts with the Department of Education, YAI, HRC, where they come for field trips during the day instead of going to the Bronx Zoo or Museum of Natural History, they come here and then we have private lessons, we have dance parties.
0: That's great and you have told me um, that some of the musicians that you've worked with have been able to express themselves and through music, in a way that they otherwise might not have access to express themselves. Absolutely,
6: I mean that's the best part of the foundation is to see the progress, um, where you have musician coming in very shy, not not uh, maybe lacking a little confidence, and coming in over a period of time, and all of a sudden you see them in front of everyone singing a solo. We have another um, musician who wanted to write a song because she lost her, one of her boyfriends, or her boyfriend, and so she wanted to write about it and a beautiful song that we recorded for her um, about that experience. And it, it allows a person to express themselves, grieve over it, and get over it. Um, we also have people now in bands um, jamming together. It's a magical place.
0: What are some of the most um, memorable songs that, you, that kind of come to mind when you think about the musicians? I'm sure you have a ton, but uh, which, what are some of maybe the, the highlights or some of the people that stand out to you? Or songs, I guess, that stand out to you?
6: Well, starting at the very beginning, um, Reach and I'm Not Giving You Up, which was the song that I played all the
7: time for Daniel when he was in a coma by Gloria Stefan. And what happened there? Yep, so my father played the songs over and over again for me when I was in a coma, and then somehow when I came out of my coma, I knew all of the words to those songs. And so that was the beginning of understanding about the power of music.
6: So, songs like We Will Rock You, fun songs, upbeat songs right. uh, that was right, but a lot of musicians write their own original songs. Yeah. And so, uh, there are songs about Hear my voice. So we had a group of our adult members who talked about what it felt like to be apt to, to be blind and have a disability. That was very powerful. There was another song called "The Sea of Technology," where we're all consumed with technology and we we forget about the personal interactions. So those are the two songs that really stand out for me because it makes you step back and think about wow, that what a what a great perspective and sort of. Makes
0: you think. Right. Uh, you're also a songwriter, right? Yes. Do you have a favorite song that you've written that fits this? Hmm.
7: <laughs> Are they all like your children where you can't, <laughs> can't pick one? Um, like, old, I, how about old? Oh yeah. All I Need Is You is definitely up there. Okay. What's, I, and what's I, that, what is I, that about? I, I wrote that song for a British Invasion semester. Because we have different semesters every year, mm-hmm. and also the other song, "Somebody, Someone Believes in Me," is
6: another one that I love. We could play those songs. Yeah, okay. Because okay. um, sure, I'll sing along. The, the beauty of um, music is that Daniel still has short-term memory
3: okay. issues,
6: but not with music. So when I talk to Daniel now with an open-ended question. That's difficult for Daniel to process. If I gave Daniel choices, three multiple choices, he would get it. Right. But then with music, when I play one of the songs, um, you'll see that he'll remember every single word. Uh-huh. Right. I
0: was yeah. saying I was going to think. Are you play the uh, these and these songs. Are you playing the piano. Are you playing guitar. What are you no, playing? just, just singing. singing.
7: Yeah.
0: Part of your organization is also out facing and um, trying to bring this sort of joy and. Uh, of, of music, and also break a lot, break down a lot of the barriers that would be between um, uh, disabled people and the rest of the world. Um, and you have been able to do some amazing things. Tell me a little bit about your partnership with the Yankees and how that that oh, whole day went. Yeah.
7: Okay. So Yankees Hope Week was definitely like the tipping point for our foundation. The Yankees chose us to be a part of Hope Week back in 2011 was it? And so Hope Week is one week a year where the Yankees pick five organizations to honor or do something nice for. So they heard it, so they heard that it was our Broadway semester. So they rented out the Brooks Atkinson Theater on Broadway for me and our members to perform at. And Nick Swisher actually let us in on another special surprise. He told us that we were going to sing the National Anthem and start the game that night. So that was awesome. There's two huge venues right in this yeah. same day. So uh,
0: how, what was it like singing in a Broadway theater? It was awesome.
7: <laughs> I imagine. Uh, yeah. So how did they spring the surprise and on then you? then Nick Swisher actually told us that we were going to sing the National Anthem and start the game that night. So the, the whole surprise um, was that the Yankees
6: worked through, uh, worked through me mm-hmm. and they said, why don't you tell the musicians that there was an anonymous stoner mm-hmm. who heard that you had a Broadway uh, theme that semester and wanted to rent out a Broadway theater for Monday for you to perform. So we had all our musicians practicing eight numbers with the idea that they were gonna just bring their family and friends to perform at Brooks Atkinson Theater, but the Yankees showed up, unbeknownst to any of them. Mm-hmm. So it was a really special day. Uh, we had them practicing the national anthem because we had been practicing at, for some of the minor leagues, mm-hmm. and so we were ready for that as well. So I knew all I knew everything that was going on, but I just mm-hmm. had to keep really quiet.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> right. How many people were in Yankee Stadium? Do you know? Like Forty-five yeah, <laughs> thousand, something like that. Right. So what is so what is that experience? Walk me through
7: that experience a little bit. That experience was amazing. Right. Because we we've never performed in front of more than I think like three hundred people. <laughs> That's quite a jump. And Definitely. And
6: someone from the Yankees said that it was one of the best crowd reactions that he's ever seen. He's really? Been, he's been with a. Yankees for about fifteen years. Mm -hmm. You said the reaction from the fans was amazing. A little-known fact, which was funny, was that when we went going, we went from Brook. We have a Latin beat in our national anthem, so it it comes. uh,
0: Yeah, that over well in the Bronx, I think. (laughs)
6: Exactly. And so we had. We usually have congas and claves as part of the national anthem, and when we were going from Brooks Atkinson Theater to Yankee Stadium, I dropped off the congas. So we didn't have any. Mm-hmm. And so the Yankees came up with, they said, well, wait a second, we have these ice buckets. <laughs> and so we turn. if you look closely in that rendition of the, the National Anthem, we had about five ice buckets <laughs> that we were using okay. as makeshift uh, congress, okay. which was That's hilarious. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. it's
0: funny. Very, very uh, New York City subway. <laughs> <laughs> what, you know, part of it is obviously that you, you want to bring the joy and talents of, of the people that are here to you know the wider world and so do you remember anyone's particular reaction or did anyone say anything come up to you guys afterwards i mean
6: oh well, sure i mean there was the reaction was amazing um when we were going when the musicians were going to the seats yeah they were just welcomed uh-huh. uh, like celebrities yeah. going there and everybody right. was given encouraging words and i think the greatest compliment um they have a roll call at Yankee Stadium, where the bleacher creatures yell out all the players' yes. names uh, in the first inning, and they actually yelled out Danny Trush from the bleachers. Oh, uh, nice! Yeah. So that was something I'll never forget. And then when we saw that, we, we when we left the stadium at eleven thirty, we were walking past the uh, players' parking lot, and right. there was a whole bunch of fans waiting for the Yankees there. And we were walking by, and they recognized Danny, and they started doing the Bleacher's Call of Danny Trash again <laughs> oh, uh, wow. as we were walking by. And so those things really stick out. But I would say that the biggest thing was the reaction from the crowd and how they just embraced our members mm-hmm. and made them celebrities for a night. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it was like they were... You know, just like everyone else. Yeah, sure. It was
7: like we were the Beatles. Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That is fantastic. Uh, cool. Well, do you have any other... I mean, it's 12 years and when you showed me around that you had so many great memories. Can you... Any other memories um, jump out to you as highlights of, your, of the 12 years of this organization? Any other stories?
6: I think, I think um, one of our uh, private lesson students, uh, he's Emerging Verbal. He's really a a prodigy, and so he communicates through uh, music and we asked him if he wanted to play at the Cutting Room, which was a venue in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have something called the Power Music series with partners, uh, two well-known musicians, and we have it, I don't know, maybe six times a year. So I asked him and I asked them if they'd be comfortable having him play. And so um, he said yes, and he transformed from, again, mer- emerging verbal and sometimes repeating what you say mm-hmm. to going on the stage of the cutting room and, and killing it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he just killed it. A Tracy Chapman song.
3: What,
0: what instrument does he play?
6: What uh, instrument? He plays the keyboard. Keyboard, okay. And he sings. Right. And he got behind the keys and started singing Tracy Chapman, Just Give Me One Reason. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, I was so happy for him and his family. And I looked around at the incredible, like, smiles and reactions of uh, the people, the other people there. That was something that really stands out. Right. Um, The other thing that stands out, I mean, we have a diversity awareness program and Julia uh, participates. Oh, yeah,
0: I meant to ask you about that. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, uh-huh. Julia
6: participates. So we have a program where we talk about differences and disabilities mm-hmm. and then um, the participating organization volunteers with our members. So, first of all, our instructors were petrified <laughs> having <laughs> Juilliard students coming to partake in their classes. Uh, <laughs> and it turned out after the fact... That the Juilliard students were petrified coming here. Really? And to see how that interacted because the Juilliard students, they're all prodigies. They're the best of the best in the world. Mm-hmm. And they didn't realize that music could be recreational.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. they, they view, just been. They
6: view music as an art form and they're as close to as perfect as you can be. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they saw another side of how music can engage and what was beautiful is that you have two parties that had butterflies just all of a sudden coming together and and working together in music and enjoying each other and we got these beautiful letters from the Juilliard students saying that you know it really changed them the whole experience that they weren't aware of it because a lot of times the elite are protected um, or you know nurtured in a certain direction and it just opened their eyes. It was beautiful to read those letters right. and also see the reactions. And our musicians couldn't believe it that they were pl- playing and performing next to a Juilliard student. So that was really a highlight.
0: Yeah, and they come every the year. Point. Every year now? They come every yeah. year Oh, Cool. That's really cool. Um, how about you, Daniel? Do you have any, any over the last 12 years of the organization, what are some of the, your favorite moments?
7: Um, I guess one of my favorite moments is just getting our new center. Okay. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's
0: such a beautiful, I was surprised how big it is. Yeah. Yeah? What was it the first oh, time, like, you most, walk around the hall? That must have been. Yeah,
7: most people are surprised at how big it is. It's 8,700 square feet. Why don't you tell the story about, what happened, how we now own it. Oh yeah, okay. So one of my good friends from Dalton. Never forgot you, right? Yeah, yep. So his family has a real estate development development company. So he took us to see a bunch of different places. And then he asked us, which one do you like? And we said, we like this one but we could never afford it. And then he said, I'm not, don't be so sure of that. So his family first bought it and gave it to us with a 0.1% interest. And then a couple months later, they called us back and said that their family spoke about it and they've decided to give it to us. We get the mortgage? Yeah, so we own it downright. Wow.
0: Wow! That, wow! That's fantastic. Yeah. Congratulations. That yeah. must have been. That must have been a happy phone call. Definitely. It was surreal. Um, he, the
6: family mentioned it to me first, and you have those moments where you're not sure if you're dreaming mm-hmm. or if it's reality. <laughs> so I, I asked him to hold on. I said, "Can I put you on speakerphone and can you repeat it to Daniel and Nancy?" Right. Uh, to make sure that it wasn't a dream. <laughs> and they said...
0: And this time you were not in on the surprise.
1: Huh? <laughs> <It> was <not laughs> in <on> the
6: surprise. <laughs> and they said, this is the best investment we could ever make. Wow. Oh my God,
0: that's amazing.
6: And that's why, you know, that's one of the many reasons why we keep it so spotless. We want to keep it spotless because a lot of times, first of all, to honor the family.
0: Right. And just, yeah, you you guys have been here five years and it looks brand new. When I walked around, mm-hmm. like, it we like... We do that. Uh,
6: we do that. We're very conscious of it because... We feel, um, even though there's been so much progress through ADA and um, in how people with dif- differences in disabilities are treated, a lot of times it's still an afterthought. So a lot of times people will say we have a spa- spot in the basement or there's another place in the corner here. When we got this space, we made a promise that this would be a special place that when people came off the elevator they knew they were special and that we respected them and it started with us so you can talk about respect and acceptance and understanding but if you show it and you say look this center is for you so if you're gonna say that it should be made that way so every year we repaint it every uh, probably twice once or twice a month we, we clean the floors we make sure every little neck is repainted and mm-hmm. um, because we want people to know that they're important when they walk through these doors. No matter what's happening in the
0: outside world, they're all really important here. Right, yeah. First off, great memory. Uh, thank <laughs> that you. was a good highlight. I wanna thank you both for, for taking all this time to show me around and tell me all these wonderful stories. So tell me a little bit about uh, Someone Believes in Me, the song that we're, our listeners are about to hear.
7: It's a song that I wrote with Jerry Powers, our music director. And what were you thinking? That, that it was just
6: uh, great that you had support?
7: Yeah, it was just great that I had support. That's the message throughout of uh, my recovery. Right.
0: Okay. okay, very nice. Okay, thank you again, both, for, uh, for the, the conversation. Yeah, so Thanks for welcome. coming up. Definitely. Yeah.
8: Thank you. you to learn and watch you grow. I'm here to show you what is possible. With a little confidence you will be unstoppable. I'm trying to It opens the hearts of the young and old So easy to comprehend Like words spoken by a close friend I'll be there with every step you take You're a com. a little confidence you will be unstoppable I'm trying to make you see you can be anything you want to be I've come this far because someone believes in me I've come this far because someone believes in me
0: There were times when I think, uh, you know, maybe I'm not a very emotional person. I almost cried like four times during that interview. It was... was
1: (laughs) I've been taking little notes throughout these of things that strike me, and this was one where I was just listening for like 15 minutes straight and totally lost sight of where we were, just getting so immersed in that story. That was really powerful.
0: Yeah, it was... um,
1: um, That place has... I
0: could have... um, I could have been up there for like three hours just like there's so many things going on there there's so many other you know really remarkable things you walk around and you see like um, their students with amazing people you know all kinds of different sports stadiums doing all kinds of stuff it's 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 such a cool organization
1: absolutely and and one that was interesting there's so many little miracles along the way within their story. I mean, something such as hearing the music in a coma and remembering the lyrics or something such as seeing this remarkable space and being floored by it and saying, well, we could never afford this. And, you know, them hearing, well, wait just a minute. I mean, it's there's something really beautiful about how wrapped in something that, you know, can bring about such a negative, there are all these little things helping them turn it into a positive Mm -hmm really powerful
0: yeah I almost have nothing to add to it because uh, um...
1: one, th- one thing that struck me real quick about the whole situation of him hearing the music in the coma and remembering the lyrics uh, I do this thing once a month where I play piano at an Alzheimer's clinic mm-hmm. um, in Brooklyn and it's always really interesting because a lot of these senior citizens you come in and you're playing music and it's very nice and they're listening along and all of a sudden you'll, you'll pick a certain song that's from, you know, a certain time in their life and they will light up and perk up. And we've had aides tell us that, you know, they haven't really been able to connect with much this week. And all of a sudden it's music that brings that certain thing out of them. And Hmm. I think that's, there's something so interesting about that. And I don't know that I, that's where my mind went when hearing this particular you know, example of, of what it can do for those that aren't able to connect with other ways. Music has some sort of way of getting at the brain and getting at the heart. It's right. really
0: potent. And the part about Yankee Stadium, where the whole the whole place is chanting uh, their names, is amazing. Because because that's the other half of what they do is is um, is trying to break down this idea of stereotypes. And 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 uh, so obviously, really t- super talented musicians, and they go out there and and then they kill it in Yankee Stadium and get the you know. So that's cool. It that, that uh, that's obviously the other half of the organization is awesome is that they're able to not only like build this super powerful positive force, but then they kind of like, they push it out there.
1: Yeah. And then even just kind of more of a, a theme across all three that you spoke to is this, um, I thought it was interesting that Daniel's father mentioned that they didn't see music as a social activity. And one of the benefits of the space they have is it can be social because people are coming there to play. And I, I think that's like a cool and powerful, output of all of these different organizations of it's something that can be done in a silo if you have you know the one teacher and you're growing up with it but you know whether it was building beats through technology of you're being able to connect with others as they're doing that when you're djing and going to libraries um, or in this particular case where it's these people rallying together in one space to be able to share music and play music together it's this cool added benefit of the sociability of music, rather than just keeping it to yourself, mm-hmm. which goes back to all their points of expression as well. Of you know, it's such a great medium for them, and to be able to share that with others is so great.
0: Cool. I think I'm gonna let it go on that because you just wrapped it up in a nice, neat bow for us. So,
1: thanks for having me. This has been <laughs> fantastic. I'm so humbled by the work of all of all these incredible organizations and the work that you're doing to bring your stories to a wider audience is really, really impressive. So thank you for
0: having And I I appreciate you coming and uh, taking off the pressure from the thing I hate the most, which is talking to myself. So now I don't get to talk to myself anymore.
1: At least for this hour.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for the rest of the night I've been talking to myself.
1: we
3: know. (laughs)
0: Hey everyone, just wanted to go over a couple details that I left out of the podcast. First off, I wanted to thank DJ Cinco for the use of his music throughout this episode, uh, including what you're hearing right now, actually. Uh, DJ Cinco, you may know as Alberto from the first interview with Building Beats. Secondly, I just wanted to go quickly through the details of the fundraising and networking event on September 18th. There will be uh, representatives from nine different organizations throughout New York City that have been featured or will be featured on the... Podcast. So you can learn about their stories by listening to uh, previous episodes. You can check out who's coming by following the Facebook page and get tickets there as well. Let's get tickets on Eventbrite. And that's it. Looking forward to seeing you on the 18th. waiting for it to turn into like one of those musicals where they just like the rent or whatever what is it rent
1: rent Rent is a musical
0: no